everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Den of Sin, a movie podcast with Devin and James. Uh, so, um, you know, this is our third episode in. We're very excited. Uh, this week, we're going to do something a little different. Instead of talking about a specific actor, a specific director's work, we're going to talk about a whole year of film. Uh, and, oh boy, uh, Devin chose an amazing year, a uh, year that caught, uh, I think, both of us by surprise by the sheer amount of amazing films that came out in this single year. Uh, you want to go ahead and talk about that year, Devin? We're talking about 1980. 1980. So, yes, which we were both alive and breathing through. Uh, so, yeah, surprisingly. What made you, was this just a movie, or a year of, of film that you just chose at random? Did you just pull it straight out of your old keister? Or was there like something about this year specifically that you already knew and wanted to talk about? Well, a couple of movies that came out in 1980 have already been kind of publicly celebrating 40th anniversaries. And, oh, that's true. Yeah. And uh, so that kind of caught my attention. Like, wow, can't believe those came out the same year. And then doing the De Palma episode last week, uh, I was reminded that this mm-hmm. was also the year I was that Dress to Kill came out. Yeah, Dress to Kill came out in 1980. And I was like, oh my God, these all these movies came out in 1980. Uh, well, we're never going to get to celebrate their 40th anniversary again. And who knows if we'll be on the earth for their 50th. Exactly. <laughs> so, so let's uh, go ahead and talk about how great 1980 was. It's also known, by the way, to film fans as the year that somehow ordinary people beat Raging Bull at the Bull. Oscars. Yeah, I, I mean, I knew that was going to get brought up. You know, I got to say, like, you know, when you when you proposed it, even without looking at the list, I was excited because I think, honestly, I think this is the most exciting time in American film history, which is uh, the 70s are an exciting period uh, for film, obviously. You know, it's a sort of a uh, lot of you know, groundbreaking films and filmmakers came out of this period. You know, the 70s were a reaction to the sort of glamour era of Hollywood, like, you know, 30s to, you know, the late 60s, as far as the kind of content, the kind of films they were making, what was popular. And then the 70s sort of came out with a more, you know, personal, sort of more human side of film. Like I said, a lot of like uh, independent filmmakers getting their start. But then you go into the, so you still have those films. You still have those filmmakers are still working. But then the into the late 70s and early 80s, you start to have the blockbusters. You start to have those films that sort of um, create the modern uh, idea of film spectacles, huge audience viewed blockbuster c- cinema movies like jaws and you know obviously the star wars films and everything but uh, it's just in the, i think it's and then in the 80s which i think are the height it's the height of pop cinema where there was just so many year to year there were just so many amazing movies that are popular groundbreaking still this day beloved movies um movies that are actually being consistently remade because they were so good and we've run out of ideas apparently. But this has always been an interesting that like you still have, like I said, you still have, by 1980, you still have a lot of that seventies vibe going on. Movies we'll talk about, I'm sure on this list by, you know, more, I will say cutting edge or more artistically minded directors um, without sounding too pretentious about it. But then you also have big popular films, big money-making films, um, and exciting movies. That's the thing is, and if you look at this list of films comprehensively, there are a ton of really exciting, interesting movies all in one year. And like I said, and they kind of break down, you know, uh, there's kind of a big gamut, big uh, variety of films in that year. So a lot of ones I'm super excited to talk about. I'm sure there's so many good ones this year. We probably won't even get to all of them, but uh, I'll definitely let you kind of go off and sort of say your impression of this year. And then also any, you want to start talking about any films particularly that you're interested in? 
I find 1980 kind of interesting because as, as I was looking up some of the statistics of that year, some of the bigger movies, well, I when you look at the, the top 10 films of the year, at least uh, domestically, you've got uh, number one, of course, Star Wars Episode Five: The Empire Strikes Back, uh, 9 to 5, Stir Crazy, Airplane, Any Which Way You Can, Private Benjamin, Coal Miner's Daughter, Smokey and the Bandit 2, The Blues Brothers, and Ordinary People. Wow, Blues Brothers is in that list? Yeah, it, it cracked the top 10. Uh, number I 11, not- I believe, was uh, either The Shining or Popeye. Well, one of the other, like, it was something I was surprised to see got that close to the top 10 because the mm. perception was always that it didn't do very well at the time. What's interesting to me is that I look at this list and I obviously some so many classic films, but you have a Star Wars movie. Um, you have uh, Any Which Way You Can was a sequel. Smoking the Bandit 2, obviously a sequel. The Blues Brothers is based on television. Popeye is based on a comic. This was also the year Superman 2 came out. It didn't crack yep. the top 10 because it came out in December. So it's actually in the top 10 of 1981. I was gonna it, it's properly a 1980 film. So frankly, we're looking at a lot of sequels, Star Wars movies and comic book movies still in 1980, which is similarly carried over to now. But what a difference between the individuality yes. of those. Uh, Flash Gordon was also 1980. Uh, all of these movies that were based on comic books and TV shows, and they all had such a unique thing to bring to cinema instead of all being caught up in this multiverse. And I'm not against the multiverse. I'm not a Marvel hater or a Disney hater. I, I pay money to go see these just like everybody else. But I do think that it's creating a, a creative void. Well, I mean, that's this is a topic we could definitely wade deep into. I will say as a nerd, as a guy who grew up, grew up I worked at a comic store. I've been I started collecting comics when I was 10 years old when it was very uncool. The idea of, a, of an actual shared cinematic universe where you get to see multiple comic book characters, that was something I dreamed of since I was, you know, as, like I said, since I was pretty much 10 years old. That I never thought I'd see. And, you know... I, I am a fan of those films. Do I think they're perfect movies? No, but, but there's a sort of homogenous and they're not, they're good. The thing is like, they are good for what they are. They're well-made films. They're well-crafted, well-thought out, well-casted, but there's something about the, you know, like you said, if you look at the diversity of not just the characters and the properties that were made in 1980, but just the approach to them, whether it is Flash Gordon, whether it is Superman 2, whether it is Popeye, those are all three very distinct films with their own distinct styles and different you know, even, studios as well. Worth yeah, abso- absolutely. But do I think Star Wars? I mean, um, excuse me. Do I think uh, the Avengers films are better quality than most of those films? I mean, Superman Two is an interesting movie, especially with like the whole history of it and it, you know being taken away from Donner. And I mean, it's problematic, but it's problematic. But I still, uh, you know, as a kid, that was the movie. When I was a little baby boy, Superman 2 was the closest to a real comic book movie you ever saw. As great as Superman the movie is, and I do love it, who doesn't? Superman 2 felt more like an actual comic book. It had the big set pieces, the big action sequences. The thing is, like, I love them equally. I love, you know, that's fine. I, I, you know, Captain America Civil War, I think, is one of the best movies of the last 10 years. I think it's quintessentially what happens when you get take a comic book movie with a clear vision and a clear approach that does sort of pay homage to the you can tell how much they respect the source material but they didn't let the source material completely dictate their cinematic vision perfect that's a you know it's it's hard to accomplish but i think uh i'm sorry was i was saying civil war did i say winter soldier or civil war you said civil winter war so- i meant uh, civil war is great but i actually meant winter soldier winter soldier is 
amazing. It's basically one of the best like action action espionage movies. Uh, just happens to be about Captain America and superheroes. But anyways, also just happens to uh, co-star the director of Ordinary People, the Best Picture winner of this year. That's right, exactly, <laughs> Robert Redford. That's right. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's a, you know, it's an interesting comparison. I will say, just as a year, there are more chances took in 1980 cinematically than we've had in the last 10 years. I mean, agreed. It, it, that's one of the things why, if I said why I find it so exciting, is because you you have you start you're starting to see comic book movies like really trying to go after that market, trying to get like kids back in the in the theaters and but you still have the elephant mans you still have these really challenging interesting movies by really challenging and interesting directors so it's, like i said I'm, I'm super stoked to talk about this year i know i have my favorites but all in all it's an amazing year was there any movie specifically you wanted to start talking about anything specifically that you feel you need to uh dive into well i i feel like there's a bit of an elephant in the room i think we should acknowledge because people will just expect this to empire strikes back I, not so much to get it out of the way but also just to get it out of the way um <laughs> that's funny because i was specifically not going to address it i feel like uh my relationship with the star wars films is rocky at best but i wasn't going to address it because i feel like what needs to be said about empire strikes back but it might be the, my first actual memory of being in the theater I, I saw Emperor Strikes Back in the theater as a little kid. I have specific memories when he's getting put into carbonite. There are specific memories of the kid where I just remember being on the edge of my seat. Now, I'm a but, little um, bit behind you on that. Uh, my first memory of a Star Wars in the theater was, was uh, Return of the Jedi. Yeah. I was actually going to specifically ask you if you remember, because I don't. Do you remember the I Am Your Father scene? Because that is the scene that probably defines 1980. Yeah, I would say that scene specifically because I didn't, I didn't even get the context because I was probably, I think, maybe four years old at the time, depending on what, because, you know, I was born in January, so depending on where it is in the uh, year. No, I still, I still would have been, it doesn't matter. But, like, I don't even know if I had seen the, the first Star Wars when my parents took us to see it, but I remember that scene because it's such, obviously, Luke's reaction to the news is so, like, I don't like so catastrophic the way that Mark Hamill, you know, really sort of sells that scene. So I remember the kid being kind of like fucked up by it. Like, I don't know. And again, I didn't have the context for it. I don't know why it was, it was upsetting for me, but the way that uh, the scene itself rolls out that obviously it's a big deal. He doesn't believe him. He's freaking out. And so, I mean, I will say though, I, and I'm not saying this as some sort of like nerd because I could give a shit less about the character. One of the things I most remembered about it, even as a kid, was Boba Fett. Weirdly, I just still remember seeing him on screen and finding, like, being kind of compelled about it. I don't know what kind of witchcraft fucking George Lucas. I'll tell you what, it's not even George Lucas. It was Christopher McCory and all the design guys. Anyways, we could talk about Star Wars and Empire Strikes Back all day. But, yeah, I mean, I, I will say, like, it is super important. And again, it is still, like, the height of Lucas's cinematic universe, like, as far as films go. I mean, I, another sequence, I, I still remember, in fact, I remember being, like, when the doors open, they're on Bespin and the doors open, and then you see, like, all of a sudden you, you find out Lando's sold them out, and Vader's there. I remember being, like, really pissed off, being like, whoa, Darth Vader's there! And, like, and again, I don't, I don't even think I had too much context for it, but, but yeah, I mean, it's, obviously it's an important, even for somebody like me who's had a very contentious relationship with Star Wars, obviously as a kid I loved it, I had all the toys, you know, super important, obviously changed history, so yeah, I mean, you have to bring it up. Yeah. And, and, and it was the number one money-making film of the year, obviously, I'm assuming. Yeah, it was the number one, uh, both, both um, domestically and internationally. 
uh, I believe it. Empire was number one. Uh, and, and I think, again, not to go off on it too much, but I, I in terms of its influence, uh, I really do think it is the sequel that started sequels, even though we'd already had an Exorcist 2 and a Rocky yeah. 2. And then going back further than that, I mean, you had all the Universal movies and uh, yeah. Thin Man series. So sequels always existed. This was the first sequel that fully serialized uh, and yeah. left us open-ended and uh, made it possible for things like the Marvel multiverse to exist. Yeah. So I, I think more than any of the other Star Wars films, that one has actually probably had a bigger influence on film culture than any of the others. I believe that. I would. I would. I wouldn't have a problem with that statement. Now the the other one that's uh, celebrating a 40th this year that's really big is The Shining, and I do want to give The Shining its due. Uh, I don't know whether what we just did counts as glossing over Empire Strikes Back exactly, but The Shining I I do think is is worth talking about for half a moment here. Absolutely. I mean, obviously, if you're going to the most memorable movies of that era, I mean, obviously, it's one of the most memorable. It's probably in the top three most highly considered horror films of all time for good reason. I mean, the performances are incredible. It's fucking Stanley Kubrick. I'm actually more interested in that film and I do love the film. I think there's a lot of people out there who are like, fuck The Shining. You know, like it's become popular to sort of bash it for whatever reason. Let me just say, like I said, I still love the film. It's the antithesis of what Stephen King, his point. Um, there's some really amazing articles out there as far as why Stephen King isn't a fan. You think like, oh, obviously it's one of his best adaptations. It's one of his, if you're going purely by the mechanics of an adaptation, it's terrible. It completely misses the whole point of the novel. It takes away, you know, Stanley Kubrick was an atheist and this movie deals with like spirituality in the afterlife and Stanley Kubrick didn't believe in all of that which I don't have a problem with but as far as like an adaptation like the end of the book is about fire Stanley Kubrick turned it into ice there's a lot of weird like choices so I and I think that's all fascinating that being said one of the most incredibly composed films of all time the performances of the genius obviously there's a lot to be said about Kubrick himself and his <laughs> poor Shelley Duvall and all sorts of things. But I mean, right. obviously it's a fucking masterpiece. If you don't like the shining, you, I don't, no, do you not like movies like i mean it's fucking genius that's all i'm gonna say i i couldn't agree more uh it actually seems to get more fascinating as i get older there's endless amounts of material out there there's a documentary about the uh the following that the movie has yeah. there's the documentary that stanley kubrick's daughter made uh, daughter that, made, that yep. did uh show how shelly duvall was treated on the film which is a style of directing that i don't agree with or condone one bit but i understand at the time that that was a thing yep um i think that that's one of the main reasons why kubrick has gotten such a reputation for being a dick you talk to other people about stanley kubrick and they will tell you stories about what a sweet guy he was or what a gentleman he was tom cruise tells a story about eyes wide shut where he had the whole production shut down down for a day because he thought a duck was sick in the pond in the background he wanted to get that duck to a vet i've heard that yeah and and he also uh to keep with the shining he kept the fact that it was a horror movie away from danny lloyd who is the uh, little boy that played danny in in the movie uh which is the polar opposite of the kind of directing he did with shelly where he wanted her to be on her edge now certainly she he wanted the little boy to be on the edge too i don't know what kind of direction he was giving i know Danny lloyd to to keep from him what what was going on i i do find it fascinating that he had that kind of uh sympathy or, or or compassion for one member of the cast and not for the other i mean obviously when, when choosing who to be a dick to be less of a dick to the kid but yeah 
probably, probably a good idea. But uh, and, and and it's also been proven that Shelley Duvall had some pre-existing things going on. She had been very ill. She was going through a bad breakup. Um, and she kind of has her own chemical imbalances. So it was just yeah. kind of a perfect storm of he well shouldn't said. have been doing it in the first place, but he was doing it specifically to the wrong person to be doing it to. I, yeah. I don't know that uh, another actress would have had the same reaction. Uh, that Plus, I mean, honestly, too, just Shelley Duvall's face looks like she's been traumatized. Like, she could just be standing there reading the paper, and you're like, are you all right? You seem frazzled. Uh, she just has that that face. But, I mean, the thing is, like, it's definitely one of those films that has its own mythology. There's, there's so much that don't lead anywhere, and there's windows that shouldn't exist. And <laughs> there's so much it's like it's really like peeling an onion there's so many layers to the shining and what's it about and whatever yeah i think it was all specifically done to not have an answer i think Kubrick is laughing somewhere about the fact that we're still trying to figure out what this movie's about because i think what the movie's about is on its face i think it's not i agree a thousand percent yeah no point was to get us to talk about well why does this curve that way and why does that lead over there well and again and ultimately it's again and ultimately too it's a sort of a man's descent into madness mm-hmm. madness doesn't have a reason it, it's madness and like you have images that stir up to only give you a visceral reaction that's it there's no explanation to it you can try to invent your own sort of logic to it but I think fucking barking up the wrong tree. I think people are, are not real. Like, like uh, they talk about Danny wearing the uh, Apollo 11 shirt. And they said, well, you know, that's from the guilt that Kubrick felt about faking the moon landing. No, that's Kubrick literally putting him in a sweater thinking this will drive him crazy. (laughs) (laughs) Love it. And we haven't said anything about Jack Nicholson yet, by the way, which we, (laughs) I mean, I, I, again, without saying, yeah, exactly. I mean, it's I mean, it's one of the greatest performances in film history. There is legendary, and then there's Jack Torrance. Like the character, the portrayal, everything about it. It's going to be popular for another fifty years. Like it's it's perfect. It's one of those rare perfect castings performances. Like there's I used to follow a Tumblr, and it was literally just every day it was a different screenshot of. Uh, Jack Nicholson and every time it was one from The Shining it was literally just like well that's perfect like <laughs> I already know what's happening like, even if I hadn't seen the movie I know exactly what's happening there and it's not even just like his madness looks it's like him like trying to be res- I mean there's it's a fucking great performance it's I mean it's for a man who's had an, um, a career of amazing performances to me, it will always be his defining moment, more than Cuckoo's, more than, well, I mean, literally more than any of his films, because it is so powerful and so upsetting. The sequence when he's in the bar talking to the bartender, slash whatever, that, you know, God damn, I could watch that scene on loop forever. Like, there's so much under the, under tension, so much under the surface tension, and like, he's on, even at a, dude, it's such a fucking, I mean, what, what can you say? It's Jack Nicholson, The Shining, of course it's great, everybody knows that. If you don't, if you don't know that. What are you listening to this podcast for? <laughs> and and I want to say for the record, I am obsessed with the original ending. I have to see the original ending someday. There's no way Kubrick threw all of it out because he was too obsessive about collecting. Uh, and they're still finding stuff from 2001 that Warner Brothers won't release because it was against Kubrick's wishes. Yeah. So my feeling is that the ending of The Shining that he, for those of you that don't know, when The Shining came out theatrically, it only came out in um, the New York area and the Los Angeles area before it went wide. And during the time that it was playing L.A. and New York, it had a different ending. Uh, not 
mind-blowingly different. It wasn't like Jack survived or anything. It was just there was an additional scene after Jack's death, and then it still wrapped up with the photograph of, of Jack Nicholson somehow magically in another time in the hotel. And he Kubrick decided he didn't want that ending, and he went out and got who I'm assuming had been like two of the most discreet people working at any of the studios at the time. He sent people out to go to the theaters that were playing the movie up and down the uh, California coast and up and down the um, uh, through New York and New Jersey to literally cut the sequences out of the, <laughs> the, the reels that were being run. Uh, there were people, this, this has been confirmed, there were literally people who bought tickets and entered the theater to watch one version of The Shining and had it clipped upstairs while they were watching the movie and were that close to seeing the original ending and had no idea that they were missing it. That's so crazy. I just had to make a mention of that. It, it, it's one of my favorite parts of Shining folklore and I you can read up on it. Uh, there's a lot of stuff. There's pictures out now of of it uh, but it's a fun little wormhole to go down um i do think starting with the shining here this is probably a good time to talk about just what an amazing year of horror movies 1980 was yeah no and that's the thing is i mean there's i mean it was a great year for comedies which i'm sure we'll get into but as a huge horror fan especially horror of that era um obviously the one that stands out the most just because it has the longest i mean the biggest shelf life and the longest longevity is obviously friday the 13th the original friday the 13th the mrs Voorhees friday the 13th you know obviously like wasn't creating anything new but uh, i'm now blanking on the goddamn director's name sean cunningham you know he was an opportunist but you know obviously taking formula from a few films before it and then just really sort of having its own life re-watching it is it a, is it a great movie no it's not a great movie it's a fun movie but it's not it's not a great movie but it's super important I've, i'm a, i'm sitting a foot away from a huge collection of uh friday 13th uh jason Voorhees merchandise uh, collectibles uh, obviously it had a huge effect on me i think part three is really where the the film franchise sort of really finds its footing and it's sort of concretes its mythology it's it's friday 13th is actually a very strange there's a lot of continuity issues and all sorts of issues timeline issues with the friday 13th but it's such a fun film franchise jason Voorhees is a very memorable character but obviously you start there if you're talking about horror because it is it, it, it's in that upper pantheon the upper echelon of uh, horror film franchises but of 1980 nowhere close to my favorite uh, of films that came out um one of the most notorious films ever released in that year is a uh, cannibal holocaust yeah. and i feel like we could do a whole podcast just about cannibal holocaust but uh, uh before i go kind of go off on my own tangent was there anything i mean do you have feelings on friday the third I, I loved Friday the 13th. I, I grew up on it just like you did. I agree it's a very flawed film. There are other, it's sandwiched between other slasher franchises that really did try to do something different. Uh, Halloween was obviously uh, the one that kind of started it all. Although I think you could probably argue Texas Chainsaw yeah. Massacre had a lot to do with that as well. But Halloween was the first one that was really officially called a slasher movie. Yes. And uh, it's kind of like uh, similar to, to film noir where people argue it was either M or uh, Detour as to what started film noir. It, Texas Chainsaw is kind of like M and Halloween's kind of like Detour, uh, the official start, you know? Uh, and then Nightmare on Elm Street was still a thing to come. And and that, by introducing the supernatural element to the slasher film, created its own beast. So Friday the 13th really does kind of rest in between these two as just kind of a fun movie. It wasn't trying to reach to be anything spectacular. Exactly. Uh, I, I actually met, oh, what's her name, who played uh, Mrs. Voorhees? Betsy Palmer. 
Betsy Palmer. I met Betsy Palmer uh, when I worked at a an art house theater in New York City. She ran randomly came in, or at least I love me, the it was story. Random, yes. <laughs> and it took me a second. She still looked like like herself. She was still a very beautiful woman. Uh, actually, a lot prettier than she was in Friday the Thirteenth. And I approached her uh, somewhat cautiously, and I asked if uh, she was really her. And she was so excited to to run into a fan. And uh, she talked to me for about fifteen minutes while she waited for a movie to start. And I was sitting there with another friend of mine, uh, another usher at the time. Uh, his name was Jason. And <laughs> he had no idea who she was. And I introduced <laughs> the two of them. And when I said his name was Jason, she, she goes, oh, my boy. And she gives him this big hug. And I just remember him looking over her shoulder like, uh, what's going on? I don't what, Who the hell is this? <laughs> I love it. <laughs> but yeah, I, I love that she embraced it because she really did have more of a, let's say, a Mary Poppins sort of uh, reputation prior to Friday the 13th. And the fact that she embraced that her, her biggest fandom at that point in her life was Friday the 13th, I, I applaud that. Yeah, no, and that's the thing is like, uh, as a as a fan of genre films, it always bums me out when you find an actor sort of disavow and disown, you know, their previous, you know, participation in quote unquote, uh, lowbrow films or you know, genre film. So I'm always happy to hear that uh, celebrities or actors sort of embrace those roles as well, especially because if you think about like the bread and butter for a lot of those people, it is those films that really kind of made them their money. But I mean, obviously she's, I'm sure she gets it a lot too. Like I'm sure like if she gets recognized, it's for being Pamela Voorhees. And the fact that again, that she still sort of plays it up is really sweet because uh, God knows she could have been very cold about it. Obviously, like I said, it's probably the most well-known of the films. I, I, I mean, outside of obviously The Shining. Um, talk about Campbell Holocaust. That's a very interesting movie. Its legacy is very interesting. Um, I will known- never watch it again. <laughs> never. <laughs> it's funny because it doesn't, even the real shit that they filmed doesn't kind of bother me. I think it's more interesting. It, just the lengths that the filmmakers would go to make a dollar. And it is actually still kind of an interesting movie. There's, I agree. Um, I, I'm, it's not even yeah. really... I, I don't like the animal sacrifice stuff. Yeah. The stuff that happens to the humans is fascinating yeah, no. and enjoyable to me. Yeah, no, and I, I understand. And that, that's the thing. As an animal lover, I get it too. Culturally, though, like the cultural stuff that does actually happen in the world, like, I mean, that's a, that's a lot to unpack. Uh, um, but I will say this. At the end of the day, there are a lot of movies that, it, it spawned a lot of copycats, but it's like I said, it's still a quality. Did you ever see um, uh, the Green Inferno? No, I, I've been meaning to. And and again, I'm not against Cannibal Holocaust being a cult classic. I knew going into it, I got to see it for the first time at a midnight screening, so I got to see it in a theater, and I uh, I knew what I was walking into. I. I knew that some people have been very offended by what happens in the end of the movie, which is yeah. all phony. Yeah. I also knew what happened to the animals through the shooting of the movie, uh, which is not phony. And so anyone who is watching this movie really needs to be aware that you were walking into a movie that has some brutal animal deaths that did not need to happen. And I made myself watch it because I felt like I had to see it objectively. Yeah. And now that I have, I can I can tell you that I found that the, the conceit of it was very interesting. The, uh, uh, the found footage uh, element has obviously stood the test of time. Um, it's the first thing I can point to that has that found footage uh it's it's the grandfather of the found footage. Yeah, definitely. And that Even was if- done very well. So for this one reason, I will say I'll never see it again, but I'm not saying that necessarily standing in judgment of it. Um, I don't think that that director even would have, would do it a- again the same way. No. Although he did go to court for some other, he had to, <laughs> he had to bring the actors 
to a courtroom yep. to prove that he didn't kill them, which was, I yep. find fascinating. Uh, was it was that the film that Charlie Sheen turned in as a snuff movie? I can't remember. No, was it? No, God, that's gonna bother me. But young Charlie Sheen uh, turned a movie in because he thought it was a snuff movie and it was just a horror movie. And then they actually <laughs> had to go to court. It. I think that might be it. Yeah, and they had to go to court. Uh, yeah, and then he was. I think there was some other lawsuits with that film as well, if I'm not mistaken. But yeah, the stuff with like, my, my, I guess my thing is like, I, as an animal lover, I don't want to see animals hurt ever. Obviously, there is a lot of stuff that happens with indigenous people that, or other, not even indigenous, just other cultures and things like that have a different relationship with. I don't know. It's like I said, it's a lot to impact. I don't want to get too deep in that. That's not what this podcast is about. But I just don't want to. I, I, I like to tread carefully in that. But I, I like I said, as an animal lover, it bothers me as well. Everything like in the um, traces of death, and even faces of death, even though that shit's mostly hokey nonsense. Um, it was never the stuff that with the humans that bothered me. But again, anything with animals, <laughs> that's, actually, that's a terrible thing to say. But obviously, like I said, we. I follow though. Yeah, like it, it's hard to watch innocent animals uh, get hurt. Uh, they, yeah, watching. An, Watching animal suffer is uh, n- never a good time, um, but obviously it's a very important film in, in in what it did. And like you said, definitely a as an early I don't know if it is the earliest, but it's one of the earliest examples of the found footage uh, genre, subgenre, whatever. But you know, it's but it was known for being so gory. But I would actually give the truly the most uh, the most innovative gore or the most innovative violence of a film that year goes to Maniac. I love not, Maniac. Not, yeah, Maniac is one of those movies that I would consider a perfect film. I know that sounds weird, but for what, if you consider the budget, the, you know, what it's trying to be, it nails everything it does. Um, first off, it's, as a, as a fan of art and uh, design, it still has, I think, one of the best, whole, like, film posters, advertising artwork ever, ever. You know, I actually used to have a poster of it uh, sitting on my uh, wall. But it's, well, it's a movie. It, it, William, I'm already a big gigantic nerd for William Lustig anyways. I think some of my favorite with his vigilante maniac cop. I just love William Lustig. I got actually got to meet him. Uh, I got to go see um, Gob- the band Goblin perform and he was two rows in front of me and I was like, holy shit. That's, that's so William cool. Lustig. Yeah. <laughs> and so I got a photo with him. I was like, even in the photo, I look like a crazy person because my eyes are the size of saucers. I'm like, it's William Lustig. And I got to talk to him about vigilante, which is, I think is a criminally underrated movie. Yes, um, I agree with you there. One of Robert um, Forrester's best. Yes, and I mean, let's have a whole episode. We should actually have a whole episode about Robert Forrester. Let's I'm put down. that on the agenda. But it's a great fucking movie. You know, in the history of memorable faces uh, in cinema, um, <laughs> poor, poor Joe Spinell, uh, <laughs> su- such a fucking great actor. You know, I feel like uh, one of the most... one of, uh, didn't have like a giant career as far as like n- not like a well-known actor, but he's in so many great movies. He's one of the um, ultimate that guys. I mean, he's in the top yes, five that guys. I agree a hundred percent. It's funny. Cause this movie at the time, even today, it like holds up the fact that like, it's such a, sl- like it feels like a slimy movie. You want to take has- a shower when it's done. And that's coming from a huge fan of it. Yeah, absolutely. A hundred percent. But the thing is, it's funny is that it's one of the most realistic and human portrayals of a maniac ever. He's a real person. He's not fucking a ghoul. He's not a fucking, you know, he's not a slasher monster, slasher villain, slasher killer. He's a human being. And it's the, the way that they, his portrayal is so th- memorable and also very grounded. And like I said, that fucking dude could be playing a literal Catholic saint 
but just because of his face, he feels like, ugh, like, <laughs> <laughs> creepy. Um, and he really like leans into that. And it's, it's a great looking movie. And again, I, I have any, I have such a weakness for films that take place in that er, like late seventies, early eighties, like um, New York, the sort of, sleazy uh what's the street with all this like the old like 42nd street 42nd street i don't know why i blanked on that i I use that term 42nd street all the time but that 42nd street sort of vibe of new york anyways yeah it's one of my i mean it's one of my favorite movies hands down it's a fucking great movie it's such even the remake is fucking really solid um still haven't seen that i i will eventually but i've seen the original at least 10 times i've owned it on every format it comes out the format yeah and and it's partly because bill lustig uh, still owns the rights and bill lustig uh just to give a shout out uh owns blue underground one of the greatest companies putting out uh re-releases of of blu-rays and and now 4Ks. He's got Maniac out on 4K, which I still need to pick up. Which I didn't even know that. I need to look into that. Just came out within weeks ago. He put out on the same day, he put out Maniac and Fulci's Zombie. So those are now on 4K UHD. I haven't I used to, I've been buying physical media as much because we're trying to buy a house and all these things. So, um, but I haven't bought like an actual Blu-ray or I've never, I, I have a 4K TV, never haven't actually bought a 4K Blu-ray player yet. But, um, but I, I, again, I used to be somebody who, Devin, you know this, I, you, I know you're the same, like a new release was coming out. I, I was getting it like, especially for like yeah. genre films, especially low budget horror stuff that doesn't, you know, you don't see get released a lot. So, but yeah, I mean, Blue Underground's amazing. You know, they do all the choice, most choice uh, exploitation movies, horror movies, whatever. I mean, they're definitely, uh, they cultivate to my tastes. But yeah, Maniac is fucking incredible. I feel like if you are getting into the horror genre and you want to see, and again, it, we didn't even talk about the fact, uh, um, one of the greatest on-screen kills of all time. Um, I still think, uh, <laughs> I know if I'm, about. yeah, the, the shotgun blast in the car, Tom um, Savini. I think Savini still says it's one of his best he's ever done. And if it's, I mean, it's still like, it still holds up. It's still insane. I would love, I went on 4k just for that scene. It's um, frightening. It's exhilarating. It's, yep. but it's also still got that healthy dose of early eighties cheese in a weird way. You Absolutely. Know? I mean, you know, yeah. it's not a real head exploding. It kind of has all the elements that it, need to be there for a couple of guys like you and me right Um, on i couldn't have said it better and and you should go out and buy it on uh, 4k uh because one of the main reasons to continue to buy home media uh even though i've slowed down too and that has a lot to do with you know just not having enough in the wallet i like streaming stuff but eventually they're gonna take our physical media away (laughs) yeah movies like maniac specifically like okay Avengers Endgame, that will be available streaming forever for the rest of the existence of mankind and electricity. You will have access to all the Avengers movies. That's right. You may not always have access to things like Maniac. You may not always have access to things like Zombie. Uh, I'll even say Cannibal Holocaust. Absolutely. Even though it's not one for my collection, it might be one for yours. And honestly, it's not the type of thing that Netflix is necessarily going to want to associate themselves with. So when you are making the decisions on what to buy, think of those things. Buy the stuff that you think may not be popular enough or may be too outrageous to pop up on, you know, on streaming services. I've said this many times, but I would tell people like for the longest time, especially for certain movies, I'd be like, oh, I still buy VHS. And like, oh, you're such a hipster. I'm like, no, it has nothing to do with that. I'm like, a lot of movies I love, they were never released 
there, there is no cinematic print of it. It was never released in cinema. There's no there's no print film print. It was shot on video. So owning a VHS is like owning an original print. It's how it was originally released. So I like having that because I feel like this is the closest thing I have to capturing what the how the film was originally released and in that. So as much as I love the Blu-rays too and the 4K transfers and all of fancy modern uh, conveniences that we have, um, there's something about also even just owning a VHS of some of these movies because again that's how it was released. This is the first the first and only way you would have watched this is owning it or seeing it on VHS. So that's still an important thing for me is when I'm able to, especially for those movies that I love, it's owning a, a copy of it on VHS if possible. But that whole, the VHS clutches market has become so oversaturated and so over... I used to be able to buy a VHS on eBay from a direct seller for like five to eight bucks. That same movie now would be 100 to 150 bucks. And it's like, it's fucking ridiculous. But yeah, that's like anything. People ruin everything. Um, one of the other... You know, obviously, it's, like I said, we could talk about every single movie that that came out this year, the year that uh, in 1980. But two films that I, I just want to quickly touch upon is huge fan of. Um, I mean, because there's like Changeling is a fucking great movie. There's a ton uh, of really solid uh, virus came out this year. But two movies I just want to quickly touch upon because I am a fan of Italian horror and is uh, Save the Living Dead, aka The Gates of Hell, um, for Lucio Fulci, and then uh, Opera by Dario Argento, which I think our Opera is one of his most underrated. I mean, it's horror fans do love it but i still feel like opera of his filmography i think is criminally underrated i think it's one of my favorites of his argentos um and again one of like stylistically and uh cinematically i think it's a, a really beautiful looking movie so i feel like those had to be said um, yeah, absolutely. Our, uh, Fulci is is really interesting. I've always loved Fulci, and Argento is uh, actually has some similarities to our last week's topic, Brian De Palma. Absolutely. Yep. It's funny because we had talked about uh, you know uh, after we had finished filming, we had talked about how we both had sort of forgotten. Uh, you you'd brought it up, but I totally completely agreed with you that De Palma is sort of the only real classic american giallo director and how how much dress to kill sort of fits into that distinct you know italian genre but yeah i i will say too we obviously dress to kill 1980 we already talked about it but obviously it should be mentioned it's a great fucking very yes. interesting film obviously and if um, you're a michael kane fan you have to see it absolutely 100 percent um oh, and and just an interesting side note sean connery almost played uh, the part that, that michael kane played i found out I did not know that, really. I, I can't see Sean Connery playing the cha- transgender murderer. Uh, I, <laughs> I don't think... I, I would be surprised if he would take it. It seems so like he would be interesting. I mean, that's it. I definitely... Go, I'll just say glad, though, Michael Caine. It was Michael yes. Caine. I'll just yes. leave it there. Absolutely. Uh, Obviously, Prom Night's a very interesting film. I think actually like a, a very interesting movie. Um, we we'll talk about it. But I feel like I can't do a podcast where there is a John Carpenter movie could be mentioned and I, and I don't talk about it. I feel like that's a crime. I feel like... I was uh, hoping it, you would mention it. Yeah. Uh, this era of Carpenter is... I mean, everything he was doing was fucking great. He Everything was knocking, getting knocked to the part. I think The Fog is a great example of just one of like such a great, great cast. I mean, man, I still had such a... Uh, I think Adrian Barbeau might be the first actress I legitimately had uh, huts for. Um, but Adrian Barbeau, I mean, it's a great cast. It's a great, I mean, a great ghost story. The fucking effects are great. The atmosphere is great. Um, the remake is one of, I, I'm not, I'm not, hey, Mr. All remakes suck. You know, I'm not, I don't shit on things like just, you know, I let a movie stand on its own credentials. I let a movie stand on its own two feet. If it's good, it's good. If it sucks, it sucks. But man, that sequel is garbage. But the original, and I feel like there's an argument, like a lot of like really juvenile arguments of like, oh, this remake ruined my childhood or, you know, it's like, dude, the movie, the original still exists. And no, I usually argue great. to that point. It like, takes, 
Bill Cosby ruins your childhood, okay? That's it, right. <laughs> the fog doesn't ruin your childhood. Female no, Ghostbusters no. don't ruin your childhood. Don't ruin your childhood. Yeah, your childhood still exists. And, but you're also a grown-ass person and move the fuck on. But with that being said, I do feel like the fog never was like one of Carpenter's most beloved. It definitely has its audience, but it was, it's never in that top five that people drag about, even though I feel like it definitely deserves that, that admiration, just like, you know, his other films. But I do feel like that the fog remake is sort of, when I start mentioning the fog and I, people see that look in people's face, I had to be like, wait, I'm talking about the seven, the, uh, well, apparently 80, the, the 1980 version, the, you know, uh, <laughs> the, the original Carpenter version. But I think a lot um, of people didn't realize how much they loved the original fog until the remake was so bad. That's you might be correct about that. That that's, might be a, right that might about, be a. It's about the time that people started talking about it. I mean, I you and I have always talked about Carpenter, all things Carpenter, but I do think the fog was generally overlooked until that dreadful remake came out, and uh, everyone suddenly. And realizes, I want to like the remake. I uh, um I was never the biggest Smallville fan, but you know I was uh I was rooting for old uh, Tom Welling. I was like, yeah, sure, let this let, let this guy uh do his thing. Like, but now that movie's trash. It's it's so especially if you go back and rewatch the original like the atmosphere that dude it's i don't know it's it it is what it is but you know definitely one of my favorite like sort of ghost story movies um mm-hmm. but uh you know like anything carpenter i mean even carpenter's worst films are worth checking out i would even go so far as to say i don't think carpenter has actually made an actual bad movie he's just made varying degrees of good movies <laughs> I, I agree with um that. i think that's but fair. uh some more successful than others but uh i even i have some pretty i have some pretty controversial statements uh ghost of mars being uh one that's pretty contentious to most people uh they hate the movie i think it's fucking amazing but to each their own <laughs> i see the flaws in the movie but it's it's one of the, his movies that literally actually kind of free- i don't get scared by movies I don't get freaked out but there's something about that movie that actually fucking gets under my skin and upsets me a little bit um it's actually kind of scary to me uh, but anyways that with that being said um you know great year for horror obviously like you know there's really some quintessential films obviously the shining Friday the 13th, um, Campbell Holocaust, a lot of like really important movies. Uh, but that's a great movie. Grave was that year. Oh, was it? Oh, interesting. It was on Siskel and Ebert's uh, list of the worst movies of the 1980, uh, 1980, as a matter of fact. One day, like, I actually have very interesting. So, have Motel you seen Hell was that year, too. Motel Hell, one of the fucking greatest. Uh, there's all kind of critters in uh, Farmer Vincent's Fritters. Like I, it's a movie I've talked about that on other podcasts that I also do. Uh, that movie is um, quintessential 80s. I mean, there's humanoids uh, uh, from the deep. There's so many good horror movies from this year. Uh, was there anything, anything you wanted to say about any of those films or any other horror movies you wanted to bring up? Just that I love them. I mean, this was really an incredible year. I have Inferno is coming out in 82, speaking of Argento. Uh, so Argento had two that year, apparently. Mother's Day was that year. A good year to be Jamie Lee Curtis between The Fog and Prom Night and Terror Train. Night. Oh, shit, with Terror See, I'm looking, I guess that maybe my list of eight, 1980s releases isn't as comprehensive as yours, but... Uh, no, your list is thought... stuff that I didn't have, too. I Somehow, I will never forgive myself for having forgotten that Maniac was 1980. Yeah, dude, 1980, bro. Um, what a year. Uh, but as much as, like I said, obviously a great year for horror movies, um, but also a pretty fucking great year for comedies. Especially, you know, um, I think if you're, uh, obviously you have stir crazy, uh, we are both fans of nine to five. It turns out, uh, I grew up with that movie. My mom, my mom was a giant, uh, Dolly Parton fan. 
anything Dolly Parton we would watch in our house, and I, I who doesn't love fucking Dolly Parton? But I mean, great cast. It's un-American to dislike Dolly Parton. I'll stand exactly. by that. Exactly. I found some pretty interesting things about Dolly Parton recently. That uh, um, things that she's contributed to financially, things that she's been like donating to for years, uh, nobody knew about. So. Um, and interesting there, but we'll save that for a later conversation. Right. But yeah, I mean, great year for, for um, God, this is a, just looking at the list. There's so much. We could talk about Heaven's Gate for two hours. Yeah, um, there's so- yeah. Heaven's Gate really. If you haven't jumped on the train yet to, to re-examine Heaven's Gate, and for anyone that doesn't know, Heaven's Gate was probably the uh, the most discussed movie of 1980 in 1980. Yep. Yep. Uh, it was, it was the original Waterworld. Yep. It was a huge flop. Uh, it was tampered with by the studio to such an extent they cut, I believe it was over an hour off of the movie. Yep. It and, was over an hour, yep. And then they couldn't figure out why nobody wanted to see it. And a couple years later on the Z Channel, which I don't know if anybody outside That's of right. Los Angeles really knows what the Z Channel is. The Z Channel was like HBO before there was HBO. And in fact, HBO was yep. their direct competitor and ultimately won. Uh, but yep. the Z Channel was uh, run by a guy. I can't remember his name right now, but there's a fascinating documentary out there called uh, The Z Channel Magnificent Obsession. It's and a fucking phenomenal documentary. If you're a film fan... It, it will give you a-, a checklist of everything you need to see from that era. That Absolutely. movie is like a cinema checklist. And uh, and the that man movie is responsible for uh, the Z Channel is really responsible for one of my top three films of all time. Three women, Robert Altman's Three Women. It wasn't for that movie, I might not have ever seen it, or at least not seen it at the age I saw it. Fucking great document. It's like you said, perfect. It's like it literally it brings up every movie you, you need to see from the seventies, early eighties. It's yeah. It's a great documentary. Exactly. And the guy who programmed the Z channel, who ultimately is the reason they made a documentary about him is he was involved uh, in a murder suicide. He was the, uh, he was the suicide. He was also the murderer. Uh, Very sad story. (laughs) Fascinating, but sad story. But at the time he was the one who really championed the director's cut of heaven's gate. And he got it shown on the Z channel as an uncut film and I'll be damned. The critics saw it and switched around to naming it one of the best movies of the decade. Uh, So don't always believe, what what you hear about these things uh heaven's gate is a really interesting film it's probably not the most exciting thing you're going to see uh, and it doesn't need to be but uh it, it's a slow burn it takes its time it, it knows how to pace itself uh if you're watching the actual uh original cut which is available as a criterion collection release i was gonna say it's currently on the criterion channel as well if you want to watch it but yeah i guess we probably would have been irresponsible without mentioning heaven's gate in 1980 and i think it's one of the first examples or one of the very early examples of how discussion of finances and how much a movie is being how much a movie is how much it's costing it's going over budget and all the like sort of how much poison can be taken from the tabloid the film tabloids and the you know the hollywood gossip and the fact that like people already hated it before the movie came out they thought you know they didn't like what it cost exactly and the thing is somebody who's seen the movie it's i think it's one of the most beautiful films one of the most beautiful looking films um like i said it's it is a slow burn it's very poetic feeling long shots but what a great film great cast i mean i know you're a fan of the cast we don't even i mean oh, chris christopherson i could watch I all said, day i know exactly so Jeffrey i really cannot hear chris as a i i really cannot hear the words chris christopherson without thinking of you um <laughs> so yeah definitely needs to be talked but let's talk about some of the fun movies yes let's talk about caddyshack 
and how important Caddyshack was. <laughs> Weirdly, I didn't know until recently. Um, yeah, it wasn't the huge success that I thought it was. I mean, it was it was successful, you know, whatever. But I, I to me, it was like an Animal House level of success, and apparently that's not true. Um, where did it end up on the uh, highest grossing? I uh, certainly not in the top ten. I don't have it anywhere on here. Okay, yeah. So like I said, I thought it was a big moneymaker, but apparently it wasn't. It, it sort of found more of a life a little bit later. But what a fucking great movie. You know, Rodney being Rodney, which I, it was interesting. I didn't know Rodney came in that movie and he basically wrote all of his lines. Like, he just basically did his act. <laughs> and a lot of the people didn't know where the fuck it was going. Like, they're like, wait, what? what, what? So, but you know, you have Rodney. He's I apparently think it's really- a little confused on the making of it too. Uh, it's the directorial debut of Harold Ramis, which is worthy yep. of mention. Yep, absolutely. But Ramis was having a hard time with Rodney. Rodney kept on losing confidence, uh, yep. which you, you need to have your confidence for, for a role like that. And uh, he, he figured out what it was, was that Rodney was saying his lines and then holding for the laugh because it was, That's it was right. Rodney's yeah, yep. first big film. And the, the cast and crew were not laughing at what Rodney Dangerfield was saying, even though it was hysterical. And so he thought he was doing horrible. And he, and he had to right. have it explained. There's... They're not supposed to laugh, Rodney. They're not, this isn't, you're not performing a live gig here. Uh, We'll all laugh about it later, but uh, yeah, don't hold for the laughs. Yeah, and that's the thing is, you know, because he had a long, I didn't, I watched a documentary about him not that long ago, just maybe two months ago about Rodney. Um, I I went down this weird rabbit hole of uh, his like Tonight Show performances and his whole history. And then I was like, well, let me watch this documentary. And it was actually pretty fascinating. But, you know, he he had been, he'd been a, stand up performer for a long time but you know because stardom real success didn't come until he was in his well into his middle ages uh into his middle age he did you know he struggled with confidence you know his whole career but uh you know yeah he thought he st- he, he thought he was stinking it up a little you know obviously history has been much more kind to uh his performance than he was but yeah fucking just head to toe a great cast chevy chase at his best um yes. bill murray being fucking bill murray uh, i think the criminally underrated ted knight uh who yes fucking crushes it in everything he does and um, uh, so sad this was his last film too yeah which is very heartbreaking and the thing is too uh we still got um, his tv show too close to comfort after that exactly exactly yes it was his last movie but yeah it's a great movie obviously it's a it's you know for there's that, that era that late 70s to early 80s that you know raunchy but genuinely truly funny frat humor for sure kind of the height of art frat humor exactly exactly um but what a fucking fun movie. I I sadly, I still remember seeing Kaysheck 2 in the theater, but in Laughlin, Nevada. I'm so in sorry. A- yeah, uh, I yep. I could I I could have gone to see Deadpool. Uh, uh not sorry, ladies and not not the Marvel character Deadpool. I'm talking about uh, Dirty Harry Deadpool, uh, which was actually I, a good movie. Yeah, which is I mean, it's very memorable watching Jim Carrey <laughs> basically. Anyways, it's a, what an interesting movie that is. But anyways, <laughs> when we go over 1988, we'll do that one. We'll do that. But anyways, <laughs> and I was really sorely disappointed in K-Shack too. Um, but, you know, K-Shack still holds up. Still a great movie. I mean, there's a ton I want to talk about, but Devin, is there any, any well, of these comedies? I think it's uh, it's worth kind of tying these two together because Caddyshack is one of the most quoted comedies of all time. Mm-hmm. Uh, people are still quoting Caddyshack, especially the Bill Murray character. And it's a real c- Cinderella story. And the other one that I would say is probably just as quotable is, uh, 
still to this day, Airplane came I, out in 1980. I, uh, I literally quoted it two days ago. <laughs> my my 12-year-old daughter quotes Airplane. <laughs> it's it's one of those, the Zucker brothers are interesting because the Naked Gun movie, like that whole era of, or I don't even know what you would call it. Like, uh, you know, I don't know, farces? Like, I don't even know what you would call them, but the, the they Naked They almost Guns, deserve their own genre. It's, it's Zucker I know, comedy. yeah. Zucker exactly. and Abrams. Uh, That's right. Airplane, um, Top Secret, Naked Gun, Hot Shots, all of those films. It was really only uh, at the top of their game for about 10 years. But God, the, it seemed like everything they touched was was gold for a while. I don't think Hot Shots was actually that. I think Abrams did Hot Shots without the Zuckers. But same. I mean, mine is, same I mean it's basically the exact same thing. Yeah. You know, it's th- those are kind of films are not normally my favorite kind of movies. But Airplane is one of those movies that like, I mean, it's dated in lots the sort of ways yes but god damn it's so genuinely funny and it, when you try it, for that many laughs you're gonna land enough yeah, times exactly, if, you, if exactly. you're going for a laugh a minute and it's 90 minutes long you're gonna tickle everybody at some point just not everybody at the same time exactly i would say that you know in the zuckers abrams you know i think it's literally like it's their citizen kane it's like as great as all as a lot of the other ones were i still think it's the one that holds up the best i mean there's so many great jokes in it again not always the most pc or sensitive jokes but some great jokes kind of important (laughs) for coming out in the 80s too because it kind of almost single-handedly crushed the trend of the uh, disaster movie coming out of the 70s that's right that's true there was no reason to do disaster movies after airplane and in fact well that's uh, like anything once you start to see the uh the satires come out then you know that genre is on its last leg there's going to be movies we don't like i don't we don't need to talk about the blue lagoon i mean we don't need to talk about xanadu uh or urban cowboy but one movie I do I, feel I like I watched Urban Cowboy again this week. As a matter of fact, did you? There I are saw some interesting things to say about Urban Cowboy, but uh... well, you can definitely, Devin, you can talk about every ever you want to talk about. <laughs> uh, but I do want to say one movie that has to be brought up is The Blues Brothers. Yes. Um, as you know, growing up, I felt like there's a certain segment of the nerds, like as at the age I am, I remember when nerds were genuinely there. You know, it wasn't cute. There was no TV shows about being a nerd. It was, but there was this weird subculture, and not only did you did nerd culture love Dungeons and Dragons and Star Trek and all these things. There was also a specific, there was a big segment of nerds that loved Monty Python. There was like Monty Python nerds. Oh yeah. Um, but one of the films, I for whatever reason, that I, I know it felt like you had to be a, gen, to be a genuine real nerd, you had to love Blues Brothers. And I knew all of the nerds I loved, like all the older nerds, all the guys I looked up to, like, oh, you've never seen Blues Brothers? John Landis, there's a lot we could talk about John Landis. I, uh, and, well, we, we'll save that for another podcast. But at, you know, height of his best, Blues Brothers taking was the first truly successful uh, you know Saturday Night Live movie it's still the best Saturday Night Live I mean Wayne's World is fine I don't dislike Wayne's World doesn't I like come Wayne's World. close to Blues Brothers though in but, terms but of being nothing, no a great I mean movie. look at the look at the fucking just the cast of musicians they got in this shit Cab Calloway Aretha Franklin like Ray Charles Ray Charles exactly um dude like it doesn't, doesn't James Brown doesn't, James Brown like I said it's, it's like you I mean literally in the the set pieces are amazing the stunt work is insane uh and then you boil it down and you but at the essence you have two amazing performances by dan erko and john belushi the height of what they're doing just a i mean the greatest car chase of all time dude amazing and and oddly enough okay it has the greatest car chase of all time and i'm still not talking about the car chase in it that takes place in a shopping mall a big mall exactly (laughs) dude and that car chases all throughout and it's 
every one of them is unique and perfect. And every, I'll say this too. Every time I watch it, it never fails that I'm watching it and I'll we'll be taking out a movie from it going like, God damn, how did they do this? Or damn, this is still <laughs> insane. It's not just my memory. This move, the car chases are so crazy. But yeah, what a fucking great movie. Probably like of all of the quote unquote comedies of that year, like some great legendary comedies, still probably my favorite. My parents, by the way, they saw the Blues Brothers as a live act open for Steve Martin. That had to have been one of the greatest shows to ever attend. And the, the thing is, I it's funny because I was reading, Steve Martin has a really great biography, autobiography that I feel like really eye-opening. You, you sort of really, because he's such a personal guy. I have an interesting story about Steve Martin. I'm a huge Steve Martin fan. He notoriously, he's very notorious for being unapproachable, which is fine. Like he's a very private person. I have no problem with that. I don't, I don't think celebrities owe me anything. Like there's this whole fucking weird, I mean, people are toxic to, to begin with, but there's this thing that some fans have was like, well, I make you, you have to respect your fans because we made you rich you no no that's not how that works they made a product whether it was a film or tv show and you enjoy it you paid your money to see it or you you what you use your time to see if it's on tv that throwing, that's that throwing down money to watch the jerk is not paying you taxes yeah <laughs> Well, and ultimately, look, man, like people like think like people can't fathom anything outside their own existence. You can't imagine what it would be like to be somebody like Steve fucking Martin, who's literally a walking legend. He's Steve Martin. The dude is a legend. So I'm sure that guy would get hassled or does get hassled constantly. But a funny story is a friend, my wife worked at at the SF MoMA, the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art. And Steve Martin is notorious for being a art lover, a big, huge fan of the arts and a supporter of the arts. So he would go in there consistently. But um, uh, a friend of ours named Andrew, who worked at the store, at the museum store, like saw him and he's a huge Steve Martin fan. I mean, legitimately a huge Steve Martin fan. And saw him from across the, the store and like you know became shell shocked but ended up locking eyes with c martin and all c martin c martin looked at him and again this is a podcast so it's not gonna be as you know but c martin basically just looked at him deadpan just shook his head like don't even think about it and Andrew got so deflated, but my thing is like, dude, mad respect. Just be upfront with it. Just be yeah. like, no, please, no, that's please right. don't. And, and then I'm, you can a- be on the on the polar opposite side of that to bring up Caddyshack again. You got Bill Murray, who to his fans, <laughs> story about a guy who is sitting at a Wendy's, uh, eating his burger and fries, and Bill Murray comes out of nowhere, sits next to him, grabs a couple of his fries, dips his in his ketchup, eats the fries in his face, and then stands up and says, "And nobody will believe you," and walks away. Yeah, there's so many the Bill Murray. We could have a whole. I actually, again, I have a pretty interesting story but about it's up Bill to the Murray. Artist is the point. I just wanted to exactly. Yeah, I, if one the day artist I'll tell wants you, to approach I have a, you. That's fine. Exactly. Uh, but yeah, so there's some great, some some of the best comedies. There's other movies I could talk about forever. Uh, the Exterminator being one of them. I'm a big. I am a huge fan of the late 70s, 80s, quote unquote vigilante subgenre of the exploitation films. When and that's a grindhouse I, classic. Grindhouse classic. Yeah, and um, you know, I actually Exterminator two is actually i think the better of the the films is at least the more exciting exterminator the original exterminators kind of takes itself very seriously um but it's a great fucking movie and it, and it has a great cast robert ginty as the lead i think he's fucking great steve james who's also in the american ninja franchise is really great but <laughs> it has like it definitely has this real gritty i just felt like savage streets all the death with death wish films like as we've already talked about in this film or on this podcast lustig's vigilante but anyways it's a great movie we could talk about that there's a lot of great dramas of this i mean some really 
quote, great memorable dramas from 1980. We've talked about Heaven's Gate being one of them. Uh, Raging Bull. Raging Bull. I mean, let's talk about let's talk about Raging Bull. I mean, if you're going to talk about <laughs> fucking Empire Strikes Back, we have to talk about Raging Bull. It's the movie that brought uh, De Niro and Pesci together for the first time on screen, yep. which is pretty incredible. I mean, we're talking about we're we're less than uh, or I guess we're now we're about six months away from the year that brought us The Irishman, which will be the last <laughs> time we see De Niro and Pesci together on the screen. If you're going to watch one or the other, I definitely say go with Raging Bull. Oh God, yes, it's got the greatest uh, question in film history, which is, uh, "You fuck my wife." <laughs> <laughs> I could literally, oh God. I mean, that, I'm laughing, you know, because it's such a ridiculous, I mean, that's one of the most brutal, heartbreaking sequences in film. I mean, that whole thing is just so violent and real and upsetting. And um, it was a time tragic. where it was a biofilm uh, in a year that had a couple of really good biofilms. Cole Miner's Fucking Daughter, you mentioned. I was, that's going to uh, be definitely be in. And The Elephant Man is another great biofilm. Yep. Uh, all of these films, something they have in common is that none of them are really feel good movies they're all a, no <laughs> they're not all at all downers. <laughs> you know raging bull is not about an american hero it's actually about an american piece of shit yep and i think it's worthy of point i don't think raging bull works now i i don't in terms of if someone tried to make it now i think it still works now as a classic but nobody would be bold enough to make that movie now and it's really kind of a statement on how sad society has become because people would think that it's glorifying who he was his career certainly uh, had some some highs, but his personal life seemed to be all lows. And it's really interesting that Scorsese took this material. Uh, it was recommended to him by by De Niro. De Niro really wanted to play uh, this part, and I really got to hand it to him. I, this is something you would never see done nowadays. That just couldn't be done, and they did it so masterfully. And they did it without blinking. They did it full on, and and really let you know that this person is not a good person. And I, I find that fascinating. Yeah, and you know. I mean, there's been a lot said about like, it's one of the very first performances when an actor really went through extraordinary measures to sort of change their body, you know, and the effort that De Niro put into that, um, which is still very impressive. I mean, and the physicality, yeah, legendary. And the physicality of that character is so important. And even the sequence when he's in prison and he's punching the wall and hitting the wall, it's a great, I mean, it's a great, very memorable um, sequence. It's, you know, the, you know, obviously, Grisese knows a little bit about making a, a good movie but there's a physicality he's almost like an animal at that point and and there's a violence in him and it's like he De Niro really embodies that like was De Niro the most believable boxer no because fucking Scorsese didn't give a shit about it being a quote-unquote believable like that wasn't what he was concerned with he was making a movie and he knew that but he choreographed fucking, the boxing um, like a dance yeah exactly that's a great fucking what a great movie definitely deserved the uh Oscar nomination or uh, Oscar win over Ordinary People which is not a bad movie Ordinary People is no. a, 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 a good movie Ordinary People is a good movie um, Judd Hirsch no. Mary Tyler Moore are, are no slouches. Great actors, great director in Robert Redford. I have no problem with ordinary people. I just, it, it's here we have limited time to talk about the rest of 1980 and the best picture winner is the one that I just kind of want to clear past because I don't have much to say about it. Yeah, exactly. And that, and, it's a great I mean, movie. The, the See thing it is, if you like great movies, but. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, it's fine, but it's definitely, it's, it's, it's a safe movie. I think Elephant Man is the one that, that gummed up the works that year for the Oscars. I think 
think everybody was voting for Raging Bull and Elephant Man and Ordinary People took the win because it took the uh, basically the third place high of, of having the first and second place being torn between two other films. That, that gotcha. was way better. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, let's talk about Elephant Man. What a fucking... I mean, look, we could have a whole... Two black and white movies, too. I just put that together. <laughs> yeah. Well, the thing is, too, and, and even though they're miles apart as far as the subject matter, they're actually like... There's, like I said, there's, there's, they're both tragic. They're both sometimes very hard to watch. They're um, about the worst of humanity. Yeah. You walk and away from Elephant Man ashamed of being a human being. Absolutely. I agree with you a thousand percent. And, you know, Man, the story so of, good, so powerful. Yeah. And again, you know, fucking David Lynch. I mean, rarely, like, people think that David Lynch is incapable of making a more, um, uh, how do I put this? Like, uh, I guess a more straightforward script, a more sc- straightforward film, a more, like, linear movie, a more, I guess, an easier to understand movie. But obviously, there's the straight story. There's Elephant Man. Like, D- David Lynch is a very capable filmmaker. He does, he, beyond going beyond his own, like, inner psyche and, like, the films that, the, more like clat like what we would consider the Lynchian appro- approach to filmmaking. Um, the dude's just a fucking great filmmaker. Really understands how how important visuals are in cinema. Oh, light um, and shadow. How, yeah, absolutely. Yep, I understand. Especially in this. Yeah, but you know, it's one of those movies. It's very heartbreaking. The thing I feel like everybody talks. Yeah, it's a, you know John Hurt. The performance is amazing. You know, like it's like I said, it's very hard to watch. Goddamn, the special effects in this are so goddamn good. Yes, that you forget that it's not the. You think John you're looking Mer- at the real John Merrick? You forget. Exactly. 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 That was exactly my point. I'm completely convinced. Yeah, exactly. And again, that's so important in filmmaking, that suspension of disbelief. And, you know, you don't want to be looking at like, oh, that's that how interesting that actor is in that makeup. You want to just see a fully like a character and goddamn this movie. And I think honestly, the, the choice to film in black and white was fucking genius. I don't I've never seen too many like documentaries about it or whatever. And I'm, I'm sure it's got a very fascinating story. I'm actually it wasn't until we just started talking to them. Like, I realized I'm like, I don't really I've never seen him talk about the movie. And I might have like when I was younger, but nothing I remember. He doesn't um, frequently talk about about what he's done. Uh, David Lynch is not that's, famous for talking. That's what I'm saying. It, no, exactly. And, and that's the thing is I wish more directors would be that way sometimes. Right. Uh, I know where we all want like, you know, instant gratification. We always want to know like, well, I want to know what like, but sometimes like, sometimes you just have to let art be art, man. Sometimes well, you just. I think that's our generation though. We're, we're the generation. We, we hit adulthood at the peak of the audio commentary era, which I think is really yeah. only going to belong to us. I, I don't think kids nowadays to, to put it like an old man, I don't don't think they give a shit about the audio commentaries it's part of why home video culture is is dying is because you're not going to get the audio commentary of something on netflix uh and nobody Dude, cares but we we Devin, got the reason I let... <laughs> we got no, the, go ahead, the go peak, we got the the peak of of uh, audio commentaries and uh dvd special features and yep, we may be 100%. the only generation that gets that uh, and guys like you and i used to i'm i'm speaking for you but i'm sure we used to buy dvds and blu-rays specifically <laughs> because of those extra features like oh yes. This is an extra, and it's, I'm, Devin, one of the reasons I enjoyed doing this podcast with you is not just because, you know, you're obviously, uh, you know, I like your taste in cinema, or I'm always surprised, but obviously it's like, because of how similar, like how, how much on the same page we are, I was just literally having the conversation about how I was pointing out to a coworker, and, you know, for people on this podcast, I actually, I work in, I, I work in the inter, the streaming entertainment field, we'll just leave it at that, but I was talking to a coworker about how, you know, Disney Plus actually includes a ton of really great extras, and they'll include, like, you know, behind the scenes stuff making ups and sometimes you know even do some you know kind of commentary stuff and they're like they do and i was like yeah like and their reaction was like who wants to see that and i was like i do 
And right. I thought that was a thing. And I was like, no, people, it, it's never been a thing on Netflix or, you know, m- these the major streaming platforms. So it kids just, and again, I think there's so much media these days. Like there's no, people don't have the time to invest. Like I've, I've listened to the One Crazy Summer <laughs> audio commentary <laughs> with uh, uh, Bobcat Goldthwait probably 20 times. <laughs> I've seen it more with the audio commentary on than I have. I've seen it without it. And I've seen that movie a lot, but that's just a thing of the past. Kids don't care. It's not like, so I agree hundred percent. I think it, it's, it's our generation is the height of that. And I think it, like I said, I think it's gone the way of the dodo. So I'm, I'm super glad you said that because I, I, I completely agree with you. But to, to look at a bright side of it, uh, that's what we have podcasts for. We are the ones who are going to keep alive all the information we learned from all of those documentaries and audio commentaries. Exactly. Uh, 100%. We, I am so full of fun facts. My wife is obsessed with getting me on a uh, on a game show at some point. I keep telling you, it's got to be a movie game show or else I'm going to look like an idiot. Um, <laughs> but uh, that's part of how I know all this stuff. And, and uh, we're here to pass it on. Uh, fun that's fact. Right. I mean, the Elephant Man was produced by Mel Brooks. You know, yep. it's good to know all these little things. I love that Mel Brooks uh, produced <laughs> The Fly. And one of my favorite, I'm sure you already know this, but it was sad for the listeners. But, uh, you know, when people heard that, you know, Mel Brooks was, was was going to produce a remake of The Fly, the corny old Vincent Price, you know, got man turned into a fly movie, which is, a, I love the, the Vincent Price one as well. I actually really love that, the the effects and, and makeup monster design in that movie. But people are like, oh, it's going to be a silly little movie and the, at the premiere they gave out little you know wobbly fucking <laughs> fly antenna and then they saw the movie and people were left fucking puking and the <laughs> tormented to their very soul picture no but, but, but uh, there, i love again, that proof positive a remake can actually be better absolutely absolutely i say that all the time and that again also said it also speaks to what a badass mel brooks is and he the fact that like he was a big supporter of like horror movies and you know he wasn't just a uh, fucking robin hood men tights which is that's why is that how unfair <laughs> is that that's where i go with it fucking dude made some of the most amazing uh, comedies of all time uh there is another movie that came out in 1980 that has man in the title and it's not superman 2 and it's uh, not the elephant man do you know what it is i don't the stunt man oh yeah yes is that 1980 1980 and it was nominated for a bunch of oscars how did that movie get nominated i mean not that it wasn't <laughs> deserving i think it's a great movie but what made 1980 cool enough that it was acknowledged that that was such a cool movie because that movie has cult written all over it that that movie was made for future appreciation dude that's crazy stuntman was did i watch it with you best uh, possibly possibly but it was nominated for best picture i believe it was, was nominated- it really yeah it was nominated for best screenplay best uh supporting actor with peter o'toole it was really fully recognized and then uh instantly hit cult status but i don't know how it slipped into the mainstream i need to rewatch that I'd like i do to remember see it again too yeah barbara hershey's in that as well it's funny because a lot a lot of uh that period films like uh i can say like if i didn't first see it with you or with uh our good friend casey uh i definitely rewatched it with you or with casey <laughs> so i feel like we definitely at this point you know as we we do should probably wrap up i don't know how much our listeners can stand us uh talking right. about the films in 1980 but i feel like we definitely need to talk i mean again we i can talk about cold my star one of my favorite movies i fucking i mean i think i love sissy spacek i think she's probably my favorite actress of all time what a great movie um i i mean and again i love loretta lynn and the fact that fucking sissy spacek did all the music for it it's fucking yeah. incredible tommy lee jones is great in it too 
Tommy Lee Jones is great. I think it's um, the first he, time he was ever really on my radar. Uh, I'm not sure whether that came out first or, or Rolling Thunder, but uh, Rolling Thunder. We could talk about Rolling Thunder at some point too. Yeah. Uh, some point on this podcast De- definitely falls in line with my uh, my uh, vigilante films. But I feel like if we don't talk about Robert Altman's Popeye, I feel like yes. we've done a, done done a disservice because I know Devin, you and I are a rare breed. Uh, I like to say that we are men of taste and culture. The fact that we can recognize that Robert Altman's Popeye is a fucking masterpiece, start to finish, with one of the greatest films. Uh, soundtracks of all time and if you don't agree with that you can go uh, kiss my grits uh, I did not have a strong ending for that <laughs> <laughs> pulled out the uh, pulled out the uh, Mel's but Diner um, it's a good 1980 reference though exactly thank you I'm glad see, there see you, go. You, you were keeping up with the uh, with the times but yeah Popeye it was it was the first soundtrack I ever owned it was the first record I ever owned that was mine uh, was not did not belong to my parents it was my Popeye record um, I have a tattoo of Popeye on my arm that is more of a product of that movie than of the comic strip that it's uh, drawn from <laughs> and uh, it was watching Popeye when I was three years old that I decided I wanted to make movies Popeye was a very important film to me it's same still continues to be something that i watch about every year so my one of the things you know my mother passed away this year and you know i realized at some point in my mid-20s my dad was my hero growing up. I love my dad. Everybody who knew my dad loved my dad. Um, I love your dad. I, thank you. I appreciate that, Devin. And, and, you know, my dad was was definitely a huge influence on me. But, you know, it struck me if, you know, in my late mid to late 20s, the fact that really I am my mother's son. My I mom, danced with your mother at your wedding, and it is one of the most memorable moments of my life. Uh, I did not even know that. That's And, some... <laughs> and I will never forget, uh, after your father passed away, this may be getting a little too personal, after your father passed away, I sent her a card telling her, you know, my thoughts were with her and and uh, how lucky she was to have had three of the greatest people that I know as as children with this man. And uh, <laughs> when she saw me at the funeral, I went to go give her a hug and she looked like she was going to smack me. And she goes, Devin, you're a son of a bitch. You made me cry. And I will love that forever. I will hold that as a memory in my heart for as long as I live. I love you. That's folks. amazing. Yeah, I, that's the perfect Judy story. Anyway, uh, that sums up with my mom. It's, it's a tangent. Uh, it has nothing to do with Popeye, but it had to be said. But it. But but we. I will tie it back because you know one thing. Like my mom had she. I still remember to this day. Um, waking up super sick at like three o'clock in the morning, and my mom was in the kitchen uh, on a little old uh, black and white little mini TV watching. Uh, the flying guillotine my mom loved <laughs> she loved godzilla movies although she is she just like me is a is a gamera fan but she loved godzilla movies she loved kung fu movies uh weirdly she loved her two favorite movies growing up were lethal weapon and tremors which says a lot about the woman but one thing she loved that really impacted me was she loved musicals and she specifically loved really weird musicals case in point she loved popeye it's one of those movies that like you know i, I saw it probably just like you i didn't know all of the you know the the stories of it and you know like uh, it's critical reception well, whatever I just remember seeing like hey it's Mork and he's Popeye and he's a fucking really good Popeye mm-hmm. and it's fucking uh, my favorite Martian is uh, is Poop Deck and he's fucking <laughs> really good as Poop Deck it's and Ray Walsh there's fuck yeah right exactly and uh, rest in peace and then um, and his fucking whole cast is rest in yeah, peace everybody but um, Shelley Duvall is rest in peace at this point exactly right? and then you have the only actress who has ever lived that could play fucking olive oil which was Shelley Duvall the most Genius casting, start to finish. What a, I cannot say enough of like, she is so good in it. She's the perfect olive oil. 
Oil. She physically looks like Olive Oil. She's like, she looks like the cartoon come to life. But even beyond that, she captures the essence of Olive Oil. Like, that's sort of like, even the voice, she's so fucking good. Anyways. If but, anybody was ever born to play a role. And that's, that. even people that don't like that movie will say, oh, but Shelley Duvall is as yeah, Olive Oil. Perfect. Yeah, what a fucking, I mean, again, we, I, I think we've already mentioned this on this podcast once, which is saying something but uh you harry nelson is one of my favorite songwriters of all time i know he's big to you i still remember you me and my brother sitting on uh on a porch outside just literally listening to uh harry nelson you put on his uh i don't know if it was his greatest hits or whatever and just listening to song after song of i mean one of the most heartbreaking anyways harry nelson's a goddamn genius if you if you don't know harry nelson look him up he actually has a really interesting documentary about him too the soundtrack is so good the music is so fun the sets are great everything about it is i think it's such such an accomplishment you know and by robert altman like i said who's you know wasn't known for doing adaptations of cartoons uh very you know one of the uh, greatest american filmmakers of all time in my opinion uh one of definitely one of the most original and unique filmmakers but i think it works on every level and every time it gets brought up as a shitty movie blows my mind that people can't see its worth well because people don't understand it even at the time uh, i think it was robert evans who produced it had point out that uh basically we asked for a popeye movie and he delivered a robert altman movie for people who don't know altman's style when he's at his best anyways he was dealing with ensemble casts and he liked Mm -hmm. to mic everybody in the room and Mm -hmm. uh some of his movies like famously stuff like nashville he would have cameras out in the uh the set and people wouldn't even know if they were in the movie or not they didn't know if they recording a moment that was going to come up they had to improvise the conversation at a, at a party or a gathering of some kind they had to basically build their characters themselves not that there weren't screenplays for these but he really wanted to go kind of loosey-goosey with with that approach and it works really well for stuff like uh nashville uh works a little less for something like say long goodbye which was a little bit more structured and, and also a masterpiece yep now he's not necessarily going to do that with popeye but the improvisation but he did do the ensemble cast and it's really it's not just about popeye it's about this town Sweet Haven and he original versions of the script did have some of the more outlandish characters in it It, there is a version of the script that had the sea hag and the goon and jeep Mm -hmm. uh, who all root back to the com uh to the original comic strip when I was growing up I think I thought of jeep as kind of being like scrappy do like this weird annoying addition that came (laughs) with the uh the later incarnation of the cartoon but no jeep actually had his start back in the uh the comics comic strip yes People understand what a weird fucking comic strip that shit was. Anyways, uh, Popeye was weird and weird and, as shit. And his whole approach to this movie was: uh, let's take a, a sailor who is going to basically be coming out of the real world and entering this cartoon community. And Popeye becomes more of a cartoon as the movie goes along. Now he, he has the big arms from the beginning, so that that's one one thing. But uh, you watch that movie; it's a progression of, of Popeye becoming a townsperson, of him becoming a cartoon, and everybody yeah. that's in the back background they were all made up of uh there were some great actors there some great extras but a lot of the extras were trained circus performers and you will see them exactly. performing acrobats, stunts yeah. in the background and acrobats and think yep. you know there's old silent movie tricks that are going on in the background so if you're watching that movie you really need to keep your eyes open for every corner of the screen something's going on uh and and then uh if you look at the old comic strips from the uh i want to say 30s down to the details of of what the oil family's sofa looked like it's in the movie <laughs> So he's really 
actually being quite faithful to the original source material. But at that point, Popeye was more known as a cartoon and not as a comic strip. A comic strip, yep. And it was really based on the comic strip and it was done in an Altman way. And so people didn't know quite what to make of it. I think it should be appreciated as a classic now. And I think primarily it is, but it still has its its detractors and I don't get it. And well, it's funny because I I do think a lot of the detractors are people like a little bit, maybe a generation older than us who kind of, when it came out, was known as a commercial flop and an artistic flop. Those people are wrong, but that's fine. Everybody's entitled to be wrong. <laughs> One thing though I always notice about it, just as a fan, is all of the shoes and all of the <laughs> legs are literally exactly like the comic strip drawings. These sort of weird, like balloony, sort of. bulbous shoe and and this sort of like exaggerated bell bottomy kind of like um, that. And I'm blank. I used to as a as a as a cartoonist and as a uh, an ar- artist, I grew up. I I, I loved comics and uh, comic strips. Uh, I had a weakness for Dick Tracy as a kid. I still remember um, checking out a book about uh, how to draw Dick, the Dick Tracy characters and it's really formative to me. But I also remember this big collection of the old E.C. Seeger Popeye comic strips. And again, like great drawing, like it is very unique style, um, had, like which, you know, I think is, is uh, you know, the really great characters from uh, two-dimensional mediums, comics or comic strips. Like the RSS, the RSS have a distinct vision that sets it apart. And E.C. Seeger was definitely uh, um, one that, you know, definitely had that quality. Very unique individual style. His characters all had like their own uh, sort of anatomy and their own like his line work was really interesting. But anyways, but yeah, it's it's one of my favorite movies that I feel like doesn't you know always get the love it deserves. And again, it's a perfect storm for me because I love I love musicals, I love Popeye, and I love Robert Altman. Weirdly, not the biggest Robin Williams fan of not the biggest fan of Robin Williams comedies. This gets very contentious, but I'm not a fan of most of. I'm not a big fan of uh, Miss Doubtfire. Not a big fan Miss Doubtfire fan not a big aladdin fan i think sometimes his comedy is so over the top and so like it becomes almost an, uh, obnoxious and annoying to me i know that's a, i know that that's not a popular opinion i, I, I can say opinion, i actually though. i'm glad of course you do because we're so uh, on the <laughs> same page evan I, I, I did get to sort of meet the man in person he was uh he actually ended up he bought some artwork from uh, a friend and old co-worker of mine wow. um at the white walls gallery in san francisco and what he was such a quiet really genuinely sweet guy and he had conversation and of course you know even in some places cool is like a super hipster art gallery in san francisco of course he was gonna have people approaching him and he couldn't have been more civil and nice to everybody who approached him so you know rest in peace robin likes it and again he great i i mean but i always enjoyed his his like dramatic act his dramatic films are usually a much bigger fan of but uh oh, i have a long comedies. list of stuff that i love but they aren't necessarily his most beloved yeah no and that's I, again same a lot of like uh you know garp is um, fantastic i don't know is fisher king like a well-loved movie i don't even know it was in its day but i'd never hear anybody talk about it anymore and i love fisher king yeah it's one that's, of those you, yeah. that's one we should do a terry gilliam episode i'm down with that too we again there's a lot of <laughs> definitely we're, we're, i have a feeling we're going to be doing this podcast for a while so we'll definitely get to i mean there's tons to talk about but you know at this point i think uh we've gone on longer than 1980 we, yeah exactly <laughs> <laughs> exactly was there any films or anything you want to wrap up about the uh 1980 year in cinema uh i love to throw out kind of unrecognized classics so I'm just going to put this one out there if anyone gets a chance to see it. Hopscotch. It's on the Criterion channel. It's one of my favorite movies of 1980 that nobody talks about. It involves Walter Matthau at his most, most Matthauiest. 
<laughs> that was a mouthful. He's a, he's, a, he's a CIA agent. So if you can imagine Walter Matthau playing the smartest CIA agent, uh, he's now outfoxing his own CIA throughout the movie. He's kind of being forced into retirement. So he decides to uh, publish a book with all of the information that he knows. And he's completely fucking with, with his uh, new boss who pushed him out, who's played by Ned Beatty. It is just so funny. It's so dry. Impeccably written. He probably should have been nominated for an Oscar that year. The script definitely should have been nominated. It's hard to say something's undiscovered if there's a Criterion collection, but if you have not <laughs> seen it, check out Hopscotch. It is on the Criterion channel currently, and you will uh, appreciate yourself for it. Well, that's the thing is, again, one of the other reasons I love doing this is because, you know, inevitably I'm, you're going to bring up a movie that I haven't seen that I know I need to see. So, uh, And thankfully I'm, a, uh, I, I'm an annual subscriber. I, we uh, when paid for the full year to advance for Criterion, uh, the Criterion channel, which I feel, feel like is a, you know, it's a must if you can afford it. But anyways, Devin, like always, this was really fun. I feel like we touched upon at least some, the majority of films that uh, I feel like need to be brought up. Um, most of them. I think we could do a round two on this, but... Uh... Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's a little darling. Like I said, I don't need... I, I grew up at a time when uh, Blue Lagoon was on TV every three days on Channel 13, so uh, I never needed to see it again. Uh, you know, it's no. an interesting movie. <laughs> but uh, anyways, but yeah, this has been really fun. I, I definitely look forward to more of these talking about like a full year in cinema i think we started off with a bang again 1980 I, there's you know specific years in cinema for me um as far as like i feel like are like oh yeah let's talk about 84 and there's a, it is a milestone year but goddamn is it yeah so and it's Devin. you know till next time uh i've been uh i'll, I'll be looking forward to the next time we did talk always uh, looking yeah, forward man. to it too all right well all right, guys. Well, uh, thanks for listening. You know, uh, uh, like and subscribe uh, where available. We'll try to get some sort of social media presence at some point if you enjoy this podcast. Then that way you can tell us how much uh, you disagree and how much Popeye actually sucks or uh, how, how much uh, you feel like ordinary people truly is uh, deserve that Oscar nomination. But anyways, until next time, uh, I'm James. Uh, that is Devin. And thank you for listening. Thank you very much.